From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The notion that America has a deeply anti-democratic tradition is offensive to people. And I say, well, if you went to the doctor and they told you that you were precancerous, would you be offended or would you be grateful (laughs) that they found a problem and that they think that they can treat it? And we have to get over this defensiveness so that we can become the country that we want to be. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Andre Henry. He's an award-winning musician, writer, and activist. He's a columnist for Religion News Service and the author of the newsletter Hope and Hard Pills. He's a student of nonviolent struggle, having organized protests in Los Angeles, where he lives, and studied under international movement leaders through the Harvard Kennedy School. His work in pursuit of racial justice has been featured in The New Yorker, The Nation, and The Liturgists podcast. Today we're talking about his recent book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives, which has now been named a regional bestseller. Andre Henry, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to begin our conversation in a bit of an odd place. You are a student at Fuller Theological Seminary, and you're walking into one of what I understand was one of the last courses that you would be taking in your tenure there. And one day you're there at the door and you're struggling a little bit because you are maneuvering a cart. And on this cart, there's a large boulder. And you proceed to leave that in the center of the room because that's the most available space for it to be. And you take your seat. Help, help my listeners understand what you were doing with that boulder at that seminary and what followed from that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you starting there, actually. We haven't talked a whole lot about this in other interviews, but around that time, it had been a few weeks since I witnessed with the rest of the nation a Black man named Philando Castile bleed to death on Facebook Live in front of his girlfriend and their four-year-old daughter. They had been pulled over because the officer that stopped them said that Philando Castile's wide set nose made him fit the description of a robbery suspect. Now I wrote in my book <laughs> that it would be a miracle for someone to get that good of a look at someone's face as they whiz by in their car. So this for for many of us was an obvious instance of racial profiling. So in the weeks that passed since then, I had felt so distraught about the ongoing This was a recurring instance, hearing this and witnessing this kind of viral death in police custody of Black civilians. 
And that was a watershed moment for me watching Philando Castile die, where I said, I I don't want to watch this kind of thing anymore and feel powerless. I need to do something. I need to learn everything I can about systemic racism. I need to learn everything I can about nonviolent struggle. I need to stop only talking about racism when something like this happens, because that's usually when I had started speaking up at the time. The thing that led to that moment you're talking about was a commitment I made that day that I said, I need to involve my body in the struggle for racial justice. And up to then, I'm a musician, so I I wrote songs about social justice. I would play some of those songs at at shows in, in the L.A. area where I live. I'd write, I'd make videos and all that kind of stuff. But within the weeks between Philando Castile's killing and that day, I had something like a vision of me with a hundred pound boulder had been painted white. And on that boulder was written all of these racial injustices, police brutality, mass incarceration, the names of uh, victims of police violence and all that kind of thing. And I felt compelled to do it. And so I did. I got a, a cart. From Home Depot, I procured a boulder thanks to my friends, my my network of friends. They provided a hundred pound boulder for me and I did paint it white and I wrote those things all over it. And the next morning I went to the class that you're talking about, beginning Greek at Fuller Seminary to begin what would be several months of lugging that boulder everywhere that I went in order to show, to demonstrate to people like this is the weight that anti-Blackness, that systemic racism lays on the Black psyche. And there's so much there in that answer that I I want to dig into, and thank you for giving some background. One aspect of this, so I think it's important for my listeners to understand, this happened in the context of your training at seminary. And in your book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, you describe it as almost a prophetic or religious vision. It almost comes to you in a dreamlike moment and when you go to your friend, because you, you, you put out the kind of word and you describe in your book that maybe the universe is going to push back and say, no, you're not going to do this because maybe the boulder will be too far away or it'll be you know, too hard to obtain or whatever. But then suddenly a, a, the friend that you mentioned responds and says, how big a boulder do you need? And when you described the vision that you had, this friend took it seriously and said, can we buy you a cart to carry it? That I was incredibly moved by that moment because this was a, a point where your vision of anti-blackness and making it explicit with your body was affirmed by someone else. And that was incredibly powerful for me as a reader. Yes, yes, I, by many people, actually. And the fact that you highlight that it, it, it happened within the context of me being at seminary, I have to say that the community at Fuller Seminary, there were many people who weighed in when I told them about this, because I did think, oh man, like this sounds like a outlandish idea that could possibly be embarrassing. And so I checked in with several people actually, and, and, and while I was doing it, and so many people at Fuller Seminary, they engaged it in the way that you said, like a prophetic vision, like a prophetic uh, call to do something, which I had trouble thinking of it in that way, because all of the things that I was witnessing in, in light of, I was really struggling with, what do I believe about spirituality? What do I believe about God? What do I believe about the universe and all that kind of thing? But to your point, I also just want to highlight, there are so many moments in the that I didn't get to write about in the book where there was like this community around me helping me with this boulder, 
one instance, I know that there's a professor at Fuller right now that'd be really grateful that I'm talking about this, but it was actually, this might've been a year or two after I started lugging the boulder. I was going to church with a former roommate of mine and I had gotten to the stairs of the main entrance of this church in Eagle Rock and there were a bunch of parishioners saw me standing right there at the steps. I'm looking at it. It's not accessible. I can't roll the ramp up. And four guys came and grabbed the corners of that cart and walked it up the steps. <laughs> you know, And it reminded me of that story in the Bible where the guy, the, the guy who can't walk was trying to get to Jesus. Right. <laughs> and I think there were four guys that picked him up and, and brought him to Jesus. It was a, a really uh, powerful moment. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Andre Henry. We're talking about his recent book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives. A moment ago, you mentioned that church in Eagle Rock where you were there at the bottom of the stairs with the cart and some people came down, four of them, and helped to carry the cart with the boulder up the stairs as part of your public witness. But in your book, you also mention other times when you go to churches with this boulder and you are treated very differently and the witness is treated very differently. I'm thinking in particular of one moment where you're wearing a sign on your back and I believe the sign says, stop killing us. And somebody smirks afterwards and says, maybe killing us with humor or something. And it was an incredibly dismissive moment. And I wonder if you could tell my my listeners a little bit about what it was like to be, you mentioned Fuller Seminary was supportive and some churches were supportive, but other churches were magnificently and extravagantly unsupportive. And I'd, I'd like to hear about that experience. Yeah, well, the moment that I talked about with the guys that walked that boulder up the steps was a rare occasion where some where people even recognized that I was lugging a boulder around. The most common experience would be for people to simply ignore it and not say anything. And I was playing piano at many churches in the Southern California area and in the L.A. area. And I would lug the boulder on stage with me to play the piano. It'd be right in front of everyone's view. And there was a remarkable amount of silence about it. And one of the rare occasions where someone did say something is the moment that you mentioned where I was walking out of a service that I'd been playing at and a man called uh, read what was written on the on my back, which was stop killing us and chuckled and said, killing us with laughter. Now, I do want to add that uh, I don't think that man meant anything malicious by it. I don't think that he intended to be um, insensitive. And I don't think he even understood why he had said that, because later on, I think someone might have spoken to him and he approached me later and apologized if what he'd said had come off um, insensitive. But during that time, there was so there were so many headlines that you, you could say you could in an abstract way, you could say black civilian dies in police custody. That it was exhausting to keep seeing this rhythm, this common headline, and to try to talk to people or speak up about it or express frustration about it and have so many people who don't understand the the history, don't understand the problem, asking questions like, well, how do you know that race was a factor or just straight up opposing it? And at the time, being someone who was deeply involved in church, I had just assumed or expected that would be a place where something like that, something like this kind of problem would be addressed. And it just wasn't. In fact, in speaking with pastors at that time, church leaders at that time, listening to popular church leaders at that time, it was almost as though there was this 
pervasive thought among white Christians that silence about uh, anti-Black violence is spiritually correct. Well, and you mention a point in your book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, where you are actually in an interview for a leadership position at a church, and they say to you, and I'm not going to be able to get it verbatim, but basically, we are a large church and we've managed to remain, to grow to and remain a large church precisely by not doing the kinds of things that you are visually doing right now. Am I remembering that correctly, or would you say it in a different way? Well, that's pretty much how they said it to me. I was interviewing at one of the largest churches in America at the time. And that is what someone in the interview process said to me. I mean, there was a lot of obsessing in the interview process about the fact that I was lugging this boulder around and people worried that if they hired me, then I would bring it to church or that what I was doing to advocate for racial justice would be an essential part of my work at the church. And they were afraid of that. And one one person in the interview process just leveled with me. He just, he said the quiet part out loud. Listen, we're a large church. The, the way that we stay large is by not upsetting people. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Andre Henry. He's an award-winning musician, writer, and activist. He's a columnist for Religion News Service and the author of the newsletter Hope and Hard Pills. He's a student of nonviolent struggle, having organized protests in Los Angeles, where he lives, and studied under international movement leaders through the Harvard Kennedy School. His work in pursuit of racial justice has been featured in The New Yorker and The Nation and on The Liturgist's podcast. Today, we're talking about his recent book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives. If you're enjoying this conversation, please stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Andre Henry. He's an award-winning musician, writer, and activist. He's a columnist for Religion News Service and the author of the newsletter, Hope and Hard Pills. Today we're talking about his recent book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives. Before the break, we were talking about this period, a period of years where you were physically carrying around a large boulder that had been painted white and that was inscribed with the various travails that African-Americans had been enduring as a part of systemic white oppression over the, the more than 400 years of anti-blackness that is systemic in this country. At one point, as you're beginning this process, you're backstage and someone who is a, a well-respected artist and activist looks at you and gives you an affirmation. And from that point forward, you start referring to carrying the boulder, not necessarily just as activism, but as artivism. 
I was incredibly intrigued by that because later in the book you say oftentimes when people are, are getting to the business of revolution, they feel they have to be so serious about it and they have to always present themselves so seriously. And I, there's a tension between the, the seriousness of revolution and, and the kind of moment of artivism that you discovered backstage when this person anointed you with that term. And I'd love to explore that tension a little bit. If you could talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I want to I want to in, inject something into that part of the conversation as well that resonates with me from the work of Jonathan Smucker, who's an organizer out of Pennsylvania, who in his book, Hegemony How To, he talks about the category, that the popular category of activists and the label and why he doesn't really like it. And it's because it creates this dichotomy of there are regular people, there are normal people, and then there are people who specialize in trying to make the world better. And the reason why I included that story in the book, and I felt like it was important to include that story is because I think of myself as an artist. I think of myself as a musician. That's who I've been my whole life, right? And then uh, the Black Lives Matter movement interrupted the kind of the slumber that I was in about systemic racism. And then my art became about something else. And I included that story in there because I wanted for people to understand that we all have a role to play no matter what we're doing. And we just use the gifts and the talents and the skills that we have and do our part. Right. And so I'm hoping that people will take from that story that I'm just a guy trying to do my part right, (laughs) using what I have. And to your point about the seriousness, I also want to bring that is that category of activists that I think that people start thinking, well, now I need to dress in all black and start spelling all cops or bastards with my cigarette smoke and, you know, shouting down everything and being upset about everything and, you know, nothing and kind of having this cynical, very serious worldview. And I've learned from living revolutionaries that (laughs) uh, humor, joy, are kind of secret weapons in the pursuit of social progress. That's so powerful, and especially the notion of joy as a secret weapon. And you used a word a moment ago that comes up also in your book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. You, you used this word interruption, and you talked about how you were interrupted in that moment, but also there's an importance in the work of activism against anti-blackness. There, there's an importance in interrupting that and finding ways to interrupt that not only personally but structurally. And you just use this notion that joy can be an interrupter. And I'd love to hear more and have my listeners hear how joy can be an interrupter of these systemic and structural principalities and powers, for want of a better phrase. Yes, absolutely. And and I want to add to that because I neglected to say this as I was answering that last question, that creativity, art, all of that uh, flows into it. And I, I think that one of the greatest examples of this is one of my mentors, Serge Popovich, who when he was a college student, a bass player in a band, seeing the dictator Slobodan Milosevic rise to power, uh, he and his friends wanted to do something to confront the way that their country, Serbia, was changing under this authoritarian leader. But when Serge thought about activism, he thought about very boring kind of what do you call it? Just going to city hall over and over again, you know, and sitting through boring city hall meetings and things like that. But one day, Serge saw a band careening through a public square in Belgrade on the back of a flatbed truck. And this band was singing political songs. And the song that they were singing that day was, if we're so busy fighting the dictator's war, when will we find time to have sex? And Serge's idea of activism changed in that moment where he realized that he that it could be fun. 
it could be fun to confront systemic oppression. And when I read Serge's story, that resonated with me too, because my examples, my models for activism were people like Dr. King and Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael and Fannie Lou Hamer. And although those people did also have fun while they fought the power, we're not often taught about how they did. We're not shown the pictures of Dr. King relaxing in the pool in Jamaica or playing billiards with his friends or Malcolm X. And I think it's Muhammad Ali just bursting, busting a gut laughing. We don't see those pictures often. So anyway, reading about the this revolution in Serbia and how the group that Serge started coined a phrase called laughtivism. And they literally started confronting systemic oppression by pulling pranks and getting people to um, respond to this culture of fear with humor. And since then, I've seen that in so many other nonviolent actions, nonviolent campaigns where people use creativity, they use beauty, they use art, they use music, they use a kind of Im- improv. There's, there's even an activist group that is literally a bunch of clowns in their full clown regalia. And that is how they go out and do direct actions. And I found that in the words of Rebecca Solnit, that joy doesn't betray activism like I once thought. In fact, it sustains it. It makes it stronger. It makes it sustainable for all of us because being angry is totally valid, right? But anger has this way of burning a lot of energy for us, right? And you can get burned out very easily if that's all you have is the rage. But finding ways to connect what the world deeply needs and to fight for our own freedom at the intersection of joy, it just makes it it makes it more sustainable. And also, that's the point, right? We are fighting so that people can enjoy their lives more. There's so many directions I want to go with what you've just given us. The first piece that I I want to explore is you've just talked about joy, and I framed that in the notion of black joy, which is a phrase that I've learned from Dante Stewart and others. But I'm, I'm also interested in the notion of black rest and that black rest and that taking care of one's body and re- restoring one's energy in a way that is healthful and healing can be a revolutionary act as well. And you take this up towards the end of your book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. I'd love to hear more, not just about black joy, but black rest. Yes. You know, what's really messed me up lately is rest, ease, and leisure are actually included in the list of universal human rights. It's Article 24. And when you think about that, it makes sense because so much of the world has been dominated by a log- by the logic of racial capitalism, right? And racial capitalism is the system of enslavement, right? And all of the stories that have been told to justify enslavement. And even though we don't see chattel slavery like we did in America hundreds of years ago, the logic and the structures and the institutions that were formed under that regime are still very much with us, right? And so basically we live in a world that is opposed to rest and pushes us toward pro 
productivity almost all of the time. And so that has me thinking just about direct actions in different ways. Like sometimes I often talk about building campaigns to get to the root causes of systemic trouble so that we can stop the flow of those injustices from flowing down that river anymore. But sometimes there are more immediate ways to reach for our freedom. And what does it, when you understand that we have a right to ease, we have a right to rest, we have a right to leisure, it's only an exploitative capitalist system that tells us that we don't. What's how, We can do direct interventions on an individual level. And one way that I did that today was just by taking a nap. <laughs> <laughs> As, because because it's all right to do so, which was a huge lesson for me because I think that I brought that capitalist logic into the movement with me. And then I felt like I had to be productive all the time. I have to be thinking about revolution all the time. I have to be planning all the time. I have to be always working towards this. And it's great to every day ask yourself, what can you do so that people can be a little bit more free or that I can be a little bit more safe? And at the same time to understand that is also going to kill you. And I believe that is partly why Dr. King died with the heart of a 60-year-old, even though he was only 39 when he died because of the tremendous amount of stress that it puts on the body. It's not fair for Black people to live our entire lives assaulted by this anti-Black world and then to go through some type of political awakening and then live the rest of our lives constantly battling with it. You know, like we only get one. (laughs) We only get one life. We've got to enjoy some of it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Andre Henry. He's an award-winning musician, writer, and activist. He's a columnist for Religion News Service and the author of the newsletter Hope and Hard Pills. Today we're talking about his recent book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow, about fighting for black lives. So you have this moment where you realize that you need to make a public witness and you begin making a public witness by carrying around this boulder. And we've talked about how that's both activism and art. We've talked about artivism. It's using your body. You've said the, that it is. it was a physically heavy rock. And so carrying it, sometimes you even talk about a point where you misjudge and you lose your balance and you're trapped under it for a moment. So we were talking just a moment ago about rest. You started your artivism with the opposite of rest, but rather with great physical exertion. And you did that in order to make this a kind of stumbling block for others. And these are my words, not yours. So if you, if there's a better way to say it, I welcome your correction. But you said something earlier in the conversation, and it echoes something that you say in your book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, that when you would present yourself with this boulder, the response of most white people was very interesting and I think very educative because they would step over it and not acknowledge it, or they would confront it without confronting it. They wouldn't admit that it was there. And what I realized was this is exactly the kind of systemic racism that they're benefiting from, that they're never acknowledging. And your willingness to visually cause them to acknowledge it caused them to either completely pretend like they were blind suddenly, or it gave them great anger and they would respond. And so you you talk about different points where the white friends that you've had would challenge you over these sorts of moments. And if you're comfortable moving in that direction, I'd like my listeners to hear a little bit about what it was like to begin to understand that simply visibly moving in white spaces in that way was going to cause uh, pushback and maybe even some harm. Yeah, you know, I am I'm reading another book called Rules for Revolutionaries. And one of the rules that the authors, I can't remember their names that they mention is 
prepare for the counter revolution to include your friends, <laughs> which is not something that I was prepared for when I started speaking up about the truth about black life in America. I, I thought that my friends and family would believe me very simply. I thought that they would believe me and I thought that they would that they would be on my side, that they would be horrified to know that <laughs> My experience has been what it is and that my experience is so common and that they would want to fight for a world that is safer for me and people like me. And what I found was the opposite. I found that, and I, I think that they might have been finding this out about themselves at the same time, that they were much more committed to the status quo, which includes a, a pervasive culture of racial gaslighting that prevents us from getting off the ground floor about racism, much less to mention taking action against systemic racism. And so my the white friends that I couldn't keep would say things like, I'm a racist. They would would say things like, I'm stirring up trouble. I'm imagining racism where it doesn't exist. I'm an extremist. And pardon uh, me, to clarify, they were saying this about you, that you were a racist, that you were stirring up trouble, that you were imagining things. They weren't saying self-reflectively and self-understandingly, I'm the racist here. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. A lot of deflecting, and a lot of projecting and just a tremendous amount of defensive that would surround it. And that's partly why the book is framed the way that it is, because in a way you could look at myself as a character that wants something. And what I want is to fight for my rights. Right. And the antagonists become the very people that I loved most and thought would be my my biggest allies. What struck me again and again in your book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, is the the way in which these people who had been as close as kind of adopted family at many points, they refused not only to hear your story, but even to let you have your own story. It seemed like again and again, the tactic was to brush past what you were saying about your experience of these events and to re-narrate for you what you were experiencing. Now, those are my words, not yours. Would you say it in a different way or, or am I on to something there? I think that you are onto something like one example to me comes from my there's a story I tell where my god sister says, when did you become so angry? <laughs> right. Uh, to me, as I had been speaking up about the murder of or the killing of Freddie Gray. And, you know, I, I unpack a lot there, but. There is it's kind of amazing that someone could have been as close to me as family and just assume that I just became angry about this. So then who was I to you? you know, this whole time. And when you thought of me, what did you think about me? Because it's, it seems like you needed for me to be the kind of Black person in your life that was happy and docile and didn't think, you know, didn't see these things about the world. But then, and when you discovered that it wasn't that way, you didn't reflect on yourself and say, oh my gosh, how have I been ignorant to his pain this whole time? You reflected on me and basically said, how could you? <laughs> right? Well, and there are two points that come to mind as you're saying that. One is you do an analysis at several points through your book where you say, and colonialism and white power structures, they really rely on a certain type of a certain type of presentation of blackness that is contented blackness. 
But then I'm also thinking about a moment when you are at the Thanksgiving event with your your God family, and they're all white, and it, this is right after those events, and and there is conversation that is very racist in its tone about, well, they should have just complied and all this sort of... And then you come to another dinner later, and the, the sort of blanket that is given by the, the father of the family is, let's just not talk politics. In other words, if if Andre wants to talk about this, it's better if Andre is just silent. And I was incredibly struck by that. And I'd love to to hear about and have my listeners hear about those tensions around having to be in that situation where you're not allowed even to speak about your experience. Right. And so just to catch some people up, the incident you're referring to is that there was a Thanksgiving dinner where I was there and there was all this talk about the killing of Michael Brown. And someone was saying some things that were very anti-Black about how Black people are just more criminal. And I've dealt with those kinds of people before. And I confronted them about saying that and no one backed me up on it. And then the next time I saw this family, which I did consider my family at the time, they said, well, we're just not going to talk about politics at the table. And that was the day after that lunch that I realized I just can't be a part of this family anymore. Because when they said that, they were basically just saying that me talking about not just my experience, but also what I know to be true about this country. And basically in that context, no one has lived a day as a Black person in that setting but me. None of them have studied the issue but me. (laughs) None of them have lifted a finger to actively fight against it but me. So I have all of the ways of not knowing about this that they don't. And they're still, they're censoring me. They're saying that I'm being disruptive basically, by speaking my truth. And it took me a while to really analyze why that bothered me so much, because in the moment, I couldn't articulate why it bothered me, but I just felt like it was unfair to do that. But by the time I wrote the book, I was able to articulate that there is this desire for for white people to remain ignorant about the details of the violence that Black people experience in this society, because that ignorance creates space for not just for them to be comfortable emotionally, but also for them to participate in this society that is structured on anti-Black violence without guilt. (laughs) If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Andre Henry. He is an award-winning musician, writer, and activist. He's a columnist for Religion News Service and the author of the newsletter Hope and Hard Pills. Today we're talking about his recent book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Andre Henry. He's an award-winning musician, writer, and activist. He's a columnist for Religion News Service and the author of the newsletter Hope and Hard Pills. He's a student of nonviolent struggle and and has organized protests in Los Angeles where he lives and studied under international movement leaders through the Harvard Kennedy School. Today we're discussing his recent book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives. 
Well, in the last segment, you were talking about a clash of stories, and you used the phrase that you were trying to tell your white adopted family members and your white friends what you knew to be true about this country. And what's, what struck me at that moment is we currently are watching unfold a fight for the story that we tell about America. And there is a, a figurative bloodbath right now with, with legislators clawing tooth and nail to try and eliminate stories of blackness, stories of queerness, stories of otherness in our public discourse and in our public schools. And so I want to widen the frame a little bit to talk about what it means to look at uh, counter-revolution in this moment when powerful forces are trying to stop the story of joy, the story of rest, the story even of being. Could you talk to us a little bit about that. Yes, absolutely. And this is partly why I wrote this book is because what is happening today is not new, right? Part of the battle for social progress has to do with common sense. It is about the common notions that we have about the world and how it works and how it came to be here and whether or not it's justifiable. And for so long, these stories that America has told about itself to obscure the roots of anti-Black violence and the role of anti-Black violence in the construction of this society has really been obscured. A lot of that has been obscured and America has been able to maintain a large amount of legitimacy as a paragon of democracy, the leader of the free world, by shoving the details around anti-Black violence under the rug. Well, the Black Lives Matter movement has disrupted that. Right. It has brought that story under extreme scrutiny and the common sense seems to be shifting. And there are many people who see that and know that and they're trying to win an ideological battle here, to win the the war over our common sense by trying to do the same things that I talk about in my chapter where I talk about the Stone Mountain, where I went to Stone Mountain as a kid. We went to the laser show. We applauded when we saw General Lee and Jefferson Davis and Stonewall Jackson when we saw them magically come back to life through the laser show and march again, right? Because There was no information available to us in Stone Mountain Park about how there were Klan sympathizers who came up with the idea for that monument, that we didn't know that the Ku Klux Klan was reborn on that rock because all that stuff had been covered up. Well, America, there are many in America right now that are trying to cover up the role of the central role of anti anti-black violence in the construction of this country by burning books and mislabeling any type of history that that covers this violence as critical race theory and demonizing it, making it the boogeyman and trying to shove it back into the closet. And this is essential, like I said before, because our because common sense is such a huge pillar of the status quo. And that's why it's important for us to keep telling the truth about these things and bringing these things out. Because what has happened, as I said before, and I'll stop because I'm starting starting to speak in circles, but that the the Black Lives Matter movement has disrupted that. And the counter-revolution is to try to uh, regain stability for that anti-Black common sense. 
Well, and it, there was a moment that really hit me hard when I was reading your book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. And it, it's in line with what we've been saying about these battles of different narratives and the refusal to see a certain type of history in the United States. And it's actually a document from Nazi Germany in 1934, where the writer says, and as we've been building this great Aryan revolution, one of the great moments, perhaps the greatest in the Western world was the founding of America, because that really, it was the first white man state. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but maybe you can unpack that a little bit for us. This document that basically says that a person who was committed to racial violence on a massive and genocidal scale looked at America and saw inspiration. Yes. And David, I'm so glad that you brought this out because this is something that I feel is not being brought up enough through this book is that I'm trying to raise this conversation because the stakes are that high. I take no pleasure in pointing these things out. But as long as we continue to clutch our pearls when we see the level of anti-Black violence that still exists in America today and say things like, we're better than this, we are not this, uh, is the more that we keep, that we continue to misdiagnose the problem and therefore we cannot come up with a proper treatment. But we have to look at documents like that where there were Nazi legal scholars looking to America for inspiration about how they wanted to construct their Nuremberg laws to exclude Jews and all this kind of stuff. And they were looking at American policy, the way that America was treating the Philippines, the way that America was handling Puerto Rico, the way that the Jim Crow laws in America and looking to our political tradition and saying, there's a lot that we can learn from them. There's a lot that we can incorporate into our own. That says a lot about America has actually not been <laughs> the leader of the free world in the way that we think. Even if that may be true, it has to be at least more nuanced than that, at least. And we have to look at the fact that America has been the leading purveyor of anti-Black ideas and sentiment and violence for generations now. And even Dr. King was saying something like this when Dr. King said that America is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, right? And if we're not able to look that dirty truth in the face, I think in the book I said we can either we can either plug our ears and sing the Star Spangled Banner so we don't have to hear this, or we can look it in the face and we can do something about it, right? But the notion that America has a deeply anti-democratic tradition is offensive to people. And I say well, if you went to the doctor and they told you that you had uh, that you were precancerous, would you be offended or would you be grateful <laughs> that, that they found a problem and that they think that they can treat it? And we have to get over this defensiveness so that we can become the country that we want to be. Now, we've just talked about how a certain narrative of anti-democracy and violence has been used by other tyrannical regimes. America has been a beacon for that. I want to now flip that around because towards the end of your book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, you also point out that every single time that we have had a revelatory and revolutionary progress moment in the United States, whether we're talking about the Boston Tea Party or the Civil Rights Movement, it has come about through a certain type of disruption of the status quo, a certain type of interruption of business as usual and the prevailing common sense. And yet when 
people of color try and implement that narrative, they are met with violence and they are told you're doing it the wrong way. So I want to interrogate a bit of the inability of whiteness to see the flip of that, where the very narrative that we love, the fact that we are revolutionaries who believe in freedom, that story we deny to the vulnerable in our society. Oh, yes. It's almost as though white people tend to assume that their revolutionary, like they have a special prerogative toward revolutionary activity, right? And that black and brown people don't have the same right to stand up for ourselves, which is why we do get these people who are on the 4th of July. There's no one out there saying, well, those colonists should have just obeyed the law. Right. You know, there's no one out there saying, oh, well, you know, what what do they always talk about us being civil? Right. How uncivil they were with King George. No, like you celebrate the fact that these people fought for the independence of those 13 colonies by any means necessary. Now, I'm not calling for any means necessary in the book. I'm writing about nonviolent civil resistance, right? And the disruptive, the necessary disruptive power of nonviolent civil resistance. But this is something that is, uh, it is an art that is largely unknown in our society because we are, our common sense is dominated by these misconceptions about how social progress happens. It's almost as though white people keep suggesting to us that the way that black people will be free is if we debate with them. And we have to be these patient teachers who invite white people into civil discussions one-on-one and drag them kicking and screaming out of their anti-Black ideas. It is a strategy that will not work. And it is a strategy that has never been taken up by Black people in mass throughout history. The civil rights movement includes no mass campaigns to go into any cities and have one-on-one conversations with white people and to change their ideas about racism. In fact, What the civil rights movement, what we saw in the civil rights movement were massive mobilizations of black people and and non-black allies shutting down cities until people who held powerful positions met their demands for justice. And I'm arguing in this book that is what is necessary moving forward. And basically, you could summarize the whole book by saying less arguing, more organizing. What I love about this and When you pointed out in your book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, it was, again, like scales fell from my eyes. You pointed out that revolutionary movements that actually shift these kind of societal level issues usually can be accomplished with about three and a half percent of the population. And you mentioned that African-Americans currently in the United States are about 13 percent of the population, almost four times the number needed. And then you do something else. You say, and yet I see value in coalition with people who are not necessarily black or have the black experience to get this kind of liberation, to have it not simply be a black movement, although the numbers are there, but to have it be a coalition movement in that sense. Help me and help my listeners follow your line of thought there. Yes, absolutely. I'm doing a lot of hacking at a lot of misconceptions in that chapter because there's the misconception that we need everyone. We do not. Studies show that we need a a fraction of the population. In fact, in a major study, just three and a half percent of the population has shown to consistently be enough to bring change about when people are organized in sustained nonviolent action. And so another thing that I'm doing there, too, though, is I feel like a lot of non-Black people, especially white people, often approach these subjects as though, well, this is their problem and I'm going to come along and help. 
right? And oftentimes when they do, they come in with that attitude that you should be grateful that I showed up to help you, right? And so a part of why I I mentioned the number, not just the three and a half percent, but also noting that Black people have several times that number is to say to people that are not Black, you're actually not needed. <laughs> you know, like we can do this ourselves, right? So that that's a huge thing so that we can break that dynamic where people come to us and act as though we should act like they are just some angel that came out of heaven. You're going to be our Messiah, our Savior, and and do that. And the other thing that I'm trying to push there too The other thing that I'm trying to highlight in that chapter is that sometimes (laughs) I think that as Black people, we feel like it would just be much easier to just work amongst ourselves. And that's not necessarily true because Black people are not a monolith. And so we have Black conservatives. We have Black nationalists. We have Black radical feminists. We have Black liberals and Black libertarians, right? And we don't always just automatically agree on everything. So there's a part of me that feels like the cause is so urgent that we need to take our allies, wherever we can get them, our accomplices, wherever we can get them, as long as they're showing up in a genuine way and willing to do the work. Well, and you just used the word urgent. And I I think about Martin Luther King Jr. saying the fierce urgency of now and the kind of transformative moment of looking up and realizing there is nobody else to do this right now. It's got to be us. I think, and you've said it both in your book and also in this conversation, a lot of times people think that their consciousness gets raised and that's enough. I've tweeted about it and that's enough. So someone who's been listening to our conversation and, and is suddenly feeling convicted, but isn't sure what the next step to take is, they haven't found their boulder yet, if I can come back to that image from earlier, how would you suggest that they begin to walk into spaces where transformation might be possible without trying to be the savior, without trying to be the, but in, instead to, to take a point of both listening, but also risking. I think that's the tension that I'm asking about. Of course. And there's several things that I could say to that. And a part of it hints at the tangent I was going to go on was that I think a part of what keeps people from entering as saviors is understanding that they have been colonized too in their thinking, in their behavior. The effects of colonization affect people in different ways, but we all need to be liberated from those ways of being and thinking and organizing the world and participating in life and all of that. And so I think that's part of how people can avoid that trap of entering as a savior is if you realize that colonization is your problem, too. You know, on several different levels, if you have inherited a thought process that says that you are superior to other people, if you've inherited a, a tradition that makes you less empathetic with other human beings, if you have been trained and formed in ways of being that are out of sync with nature and cause you to just consume and fund the system that just exploits, exploits it exploits and is driving the climate crisis, is moving us closer to extinction, then all of this is your problem too. And when you are, when you take that to heart and you wake up every day and say, I need to be free of this, then you're going to enter this movement as someone who has something at stake, right? The other thing I want to add to that is that the reason I wrote this book, a huge part of it is that when we talk about racism, which you know that I've, from reading the book, that I've connected it to the global system of capitalism and exploitation, all this stuff, right? 
we oftentimes are bypassing the issue of power and the role of power in this conversation and the way that we actually intervene against racist power, which is through nonviolent civil resistance. It has been throughout time. You know, if we understand Gandhi's movement as more than Gandhi just being an ex- an, uh, a proponent of nonviolent values, but actually as a uh, an active organizer against racial imperialism, right? And the same with Dr. King and all these others, then we start to understand that not only is colonization our problem, but but, but there is a role for active opposition to that ongoing project that requires us to actually put our bodies into that struggle, right? Okay, well, what about me? How how do I put my body? I don't think that I want to become a community organizer. You are not alone. I didn't want to become a community organizer either. And when I found out that I'd stumbled into it, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? I've got to get out of here as soon as possible. So (laughs) many people don't want to become activists or organizers, but you have your own passions, your own interests. You have things that make you angry. So that probably is a hint at what you care about. All right. Now, what are your resources? Well, how can you participate in that? Is there an organization that's doing good work around that issue that you can join? If you can't organize with them, can you volunteer to do some administrative work for them? If that's not your bag, do you have any money that you can put behind put, put behind them? If you don't have any money, are there any supplies that you can offer them? Or maybe there are things that you can do on the individual level. Maybe there's some, maybe there, maybe you need to vote in the next local election. Maybe you need to run for office. Maybe you are a, a grandma and You're like, listen, I'm old. I don't have energy for all this stuff. Okay, well, maybe there's some local activists that are disturbing the peace and you can at least make meals for them. Are you a younger person, but you have kids and you can't go out there and protest? Well, can you babysit some of the protesters' kids? I could go on and on. (laughs) But the thing is just to what do you care about? What are you passionate about? And what can you offer, you know? My listeners can't see this, but as we've been having this portion of the conversation, I've been watching you become more ebullient and animated. And so I want to close the conversation by asking you this. Andre Henry, tell us about your joy. What is bringing you joy in these moments? Yeah, I mean... As you can tell, like you just said, I truly do believe that everyone has a role to play. And so that is why I get so fired up when I start talking about it, because I understand that like in the Montgomery bus boycott, yes, there were people who you know, who organized the boycott, but there were also people who helped replace other people's shoes. And there were people who volunteered to drive in the carpool. And I know that it takes millions of ordinary, organized, outraged people to make this happen. And so a part of my joy is this, but the big thing that I would say is my joy, other than seeing people like seeing their minds blown when they hear about the three and a half percent rule or something like that is music. I will always hold on to tooth and nail and always keep putting in front of people's faces that I'm an ordinary guy, a musician who had his life interrupted. I've gone on a journey to understand these things and I just want people to uh, other people to understand it. So anyway, 
I'm making music all the time. I'm making music this week, you know, recording with other artists. I'm listening to music all the time. When we're not talking about this, I get just as a bullion talking about why Billy Joel's Uptown Girl is one of the most perfect pop songs ever written and why I'm so mad that he's walking the streets as though he did not get away with completely bending the rules of common harmonic practice. Like that is something that just gives me joy. And I want to share that with people too. As I mentioned earlier, Article 24 of the Universal Declaration of of Human Rights apparently has rest and ease (laughs) and uh, leisure as a human right. And so this summer, I want to put together some dance parties because I'm a DJ and give people space for that. Maybe put care packages together for people that come to these parties. And it's more than just a random party. It's actually like It's the direct action, right? This is our right to do, to have this space for joy. And so, yeah, that's what keeps me going. Well, Andre Henry, when I heard that you were writing this book, I couldn't wait. And I've been anticipating it for months. And when I got a chance to read it, I couldn't put it down. It's so well-written and yet also so deep. I learned so much from it. Thank you so much for taking the time to write it. I know that Parts of this story were not easy to live through, but thank you for putting them on the page. And thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it today with me and my listeners. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. We've been speaking today with Andre Henry. He's an award-winning musician, writer, and activist. He's a columnist for Religion News Service and the author of the newsletter Hope and Hard Pills. He's a student of nonviolent struggle, having organized protests in Los Angeles, where he lives, and studied under international movement leaders through the Harvard Kennedy School. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, Hope and Hard Pills to Swallow About Fighting for Black Lives. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.